Hey, fiends of the pod, this is your host, Nate Wyckoff, and I want to remind you, go ahead and like and subscribe and check out cultandclassicfilms.com where you can get uh, cult movies exclusive to us with uh, all sorts of extras like pogs, we're supposed to call them milk caps. They're not pogs, I don't know what pogs are. Autographed posters, slip covers, all sorts of neat things. You can also subscribe to have them delivered to your door every month at a discount. That is cultandclassicfilms.com. Uh, remember, like, subscribe, comment, and uh, refer to your friends, even your enemies. Every time you like and subscribe, we make sure Michael Sarah makes another film. Yeah, that's right. It's us. <laughs> Enjoy. Welcome to Compton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends of the pod and fiends of the pod. I'm your host, film critic, comedian, Nate Wyckoff, here today uh, on my lonesome again, but there's a reason for that. I wanted to talk about uh, this pair of classic films, uh, which we started last week on our episode about 1950s Rio Grande with John Wayne by famed director John Ford. I wanted to talk about these uh, from a critical film standpoint. And while we always have that in our panel discussions, I think it's really important to focus on themes, influence, uh, and and the overall effect that great classic movies like uh, last week's Rio Grande and this week's 1955 feature East of Eden. Uh, I think it's important to look at these from a very analytical standpoint to understand how they affect contemporary film, specifically cult film, because we here at Colton Classic Films love us some cult films. So last week, I talked about Rio Grande, uh, Grande, depends who you ask. Uh, I, am, I am white, super white, so oftentimes we just call it Rio Grande, but Rio Grande, I, it was a very, I called it a very conservative-based film. Uh, the, the people involved were politically very conservative, and it's one of those movies that you would kind of expect John Wayne to make uh, before things like uh, True Grid and Rooster Cogburn, where his character is really, there's no gray area. The movie has good and bad, uh, and good needs to fight against bad. It's more of like a moral stance than any sort of deeply thought, deeply felt emotional drive to it. And that is sort of, John Ford as a director basically said it, the whole thing, every movie he ever made was just cashing a paycheck. It was just a job to him, which I think is, Talked about it last episode. I think it's ridiculous. I don't think that's the case. You wouldn't probably, I certainly wouldn't dedicate this much effort that he put into uh, his career in the films if it were just my job. Uh, don't think so. Don't think the person at CBS checking out my uh, my Red Bull and toilet paper is doing that either. But this week, we're talking about a very different beast, a really great pairing with Rio Grande. Uh, five years later, 1955, uh, it is an adaptation of a John Steinbeck novel. John Steinbeck is a very famous um, novelist. He was a very famous novelist. And he wrote, probably his most famous work was Grapes of Wrath. Uh, and he also wrote of Mice and Men. I uh, really liked those multi-word titles. But no, it's a very, very famed author. Very heavy subjects. Um, the kind of novels that you would maybe read in high school or uh, first year, second year college that stick with you because they're depressing, <laughs> but they're also uh, full of sort of the, the angst of human life, as I would think of it. And so this movie, based off his novel, East of Eden, 
is directed by a very excellent technical director um, by uh, Elia Kazan. And um, again, I have never heard his name actually spoken. I've only read it. So apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, but who knows? Who who listeners of cult and classic films knows? So uh, Kazan did this movie because like his other films, he uh, he's quoted as saying, I don't move unless I have some empathy with the basic theme, meaning I don't want to be involved in a feature if I don't have some sort of emotional um, connection or if it doesn't have some sort of emotional impact and meaning to me, which is really sort of the antithesis of what John Ford said about uh, crafting a movie for him, right? He said, it's it's just a bing, bang, boom, do this so we can move on uh, and I can get my paycheck. Uh, whereas Kazan said, no, this is, I only want to do things that really mean something to me. Uh, you know, personal and social issues are two words that are often brought up with his features. Uh, he did, he's done an incredible amount of famous work. He did uh, Marlon Brando's breakout role film with Streetcar Named Desire, Elizabeth Taylor, 1951. Um, he did uh, On the Waterfront from 1954, which I think is especially interesting right now. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Vivian Leigh as as uh, in in Streetcar Named Desire, not uh, uh, not Elizabeth Taylor. That's the other Tennessee Williams adaptation, uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. But Marlon Brando in the role in the Streetcar Named Desire that began his uh, really powerful career, and Kazan directed that on the waterfront from 1954, a year before uh, East of Eden, is about a a crooked union as well as all sorts of things about unions, which certainly flavored, I think, uh, uh, at least in the United States, a sort of anti-union bias. Um, it, I don't, it wasn't caused by On the Waterfront by any means, but it, it very much the powerful elite in the, in the States have certainly caused unions to be looked at with skepticism that's not to say that there wasn't uh, a lot of corruption in unions and isn't probably still anytime you have people at the top uh, who are in control of things like money and power corruption will uh, ensue but i think especially right now in 2023 america we have a lot of issues where workers are trying to unionize uh, i am for example a professor and a lot of professors cannot unionize because uh, there was a sneaky way that uh, people who didn't want teachers to unionize basically had professors classified as managers, which means they can't unionize, uh, or it's very difficult to unionize. So uh, it, this uh, on the waterfront speaks to I think currently, uh, our life in America now. But this is about East of Eden, which actually speaks more, in my opinion, to our life now. And this is what's really fascinating. Rio Grande, uh, which Warner Brothers Discovery has released a brand new 4K transfer of much, and they've also done it for East of Eden, uh, done it sort of as a pair. They're really, as I said, complete opposites, right? Rio Grande is about the strict black, white, good, bad. Here's just what you do. You just follow what you do and you follow what's right and what you're told is right is right. Uh, and it's it's very much uh, exploded in a film like East of Eden, only five years later, which is about two brothers sort of struggling to uh, to handle and ingratiate themselves to uh, their really conservative uh, religious father, 
Um, and and the father is the character's name is Adam Trask, played by Raymond Massey, very excellent actor. Uh, James Dean, as mentioned before, plays the son Cal, uh, and then um, uh, the role of Abra is played by Julie Harris, who is a, a love interest sort of female uh, opposing role in the film. And then Richard Davalos, uh, excuse me, Davalos plays Aaron Trask, which is the uh, brother of James Dean's character. Uh, there's also a lot of amazing other people in there. Joe Van Fleet plays um, a strange mom to them, and Burl Ives is the sheriff. So there's lots of interesting, interesting uh, acting choices in here. Uh, it's a very well acted film. I would say that Rio Grande also is well acted. I mean, that is as much as I, I call it a, a very conservative, old school film. It is not. I mean, it was made in 1950, but that doesn't mean it has to hold to sort of ideals that we have sort of exploded in our contemporary culture and see as old fashioned because they're not as nuanced as we now understand life and our social pressures to be. East of Eden is very much in that emotional uh, violence of, of life, of youth, of family relations, of frustration with uh, life not being how it's supposed to be. Uh, in, in Rio Grande, things are as they supposed to be. And when you do them as you're supposed to, then that's when you get the rewards, right? And in East of Eden, there aren't always rewards. You cannot win all the time. Uh, so we have a very passionate, uh, violent uh, performance by James Dean, who many times had some sort of breakdown on set or in his... Um, in his trailer, this was his first big feature role, and he, you know, would would sort of there. There's rumors that he hid, um, and would cry and and need somebody to help him. Um, and and uh, Elia Kazan, uh, the director, basically was said to have waited, just wait uh, for James Dean to sort of come back around, and then. And then continue with filming. Uh, I think the idea was is that this really added to the character because, as as Steinbeck is reported to have said when he met James Dean, uh, he is he is Cal, like he is a a the actual personification of this character. Very uh, moody, very uh, hot and cold, really angry, but also that complicated combination uh that a child has with a, a parent who's either distant or abusive where they want that affection and love so much that it drives and colors their every behavior and often when you don't get that right it becomes this sort of uh really fiery uh molotov cocktail that can explode um james dean was is now called sometimes a method actor and supposedly he would uh really get on raymond massey's nerves off camera to to heighten the tension between the two characters i'm gonna maybe call i'm gonna be skeptical of this um because james dean's life outside of the film is not necessarily uh out of line with his character so while it may be true i don't really know how james dean um interacted other than the fact that Raymond Massey and he did not get along Raymond Massey uh, famously did not enjoy working with James Dean uh, other actors felt similarly um, but at the same time uh, the you, you know his his 
his female uh, foil in this, played by Julie Harris, had a lot of respect for him and really worked to sort of allow him the 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 explosive violence that he brought to the character uh, without finding it, or at least saying that she found it really upsetting uh, or 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 hurt the performance if anything everyone agreed despite the frustrations with james dean uh, and his uh, his personal struggles uh on and off set they really said that it, it made the film better and it's one of those cases where they're absolutely right because james dean's raw nerve i mean if you think if you've seen rebel without a cause and you haven't seen this and you think that his performance in rebel without a cause is that sort of like angry teen angsty i mean it is but compared to east of eden it is small potatoes i mean really it's like it's like call I would this is exaggeration, but I would be like, it's like looking at Marlon Brando's performance in Godfather compared to his performance in Streetcar Named Desire. They're a little different, right? Like both of them have gravitas, but Streetcar uh, Brando is a sexual violent powerhouse and Brando in Godfather is a much more uh, muted, powerful, in control character. I'm not saying that. Uh, the latter refers to Dean's role in Rebel Without a Cause by any stretch, but the intent, the difference in intensity is certainly there. So East of Eden, there are, you know, it's a, it's a family drama. Here's what's crazy about East of Eden to me as a viewer who certainly wasn't alive at the time that it came out in 1955 um, is it's, I mean, it's a solid two hours and it is not just, it, it's, it's a tense two hours. Um, a big part of it is actually James Dean's look. He has this way where he looks from under his forehead, like he bends forward, you know, he looks up through his eyebrows and um, it makes him very untrustworthy. You just cannot, which is perfect for the role because you can't tell exactly what's going to happen from scene to scene with him. Uh, we also had, uh, as I mentioned, um, Julie Harris, who is, uh, I think cult fans will probably know her from The Haunting from 1963. She played uh, Eleanor in that movie, Eleanor Lance. And uh, I mean, the cast and the crew is pretty crazy. Paul Osborne wrote the script from the Steinbeck novel. And uh, Osborne was, uh, he died in 1988. Um, he was born in 1981. So, I mean, 1901. So we had a, a fairly long life, but he wrote, so many things, um, so many television scripts, especially um, things like um, The World of Susie Wong, Wild River, the TV, I mean, the movies. Uh, but most famously, I think he actually, he wrote this, but then he also wrote 1958 South Pacific, which is by far, I would say, the most well-known of the South Pacific, uh, South Pacific um, filmic interpretations. So <clears throat> he definitely has... Uh, had established himself at this time. Uh, but by the same token, I think today he's not particularly well known uh, unless people are, and like some of those people who are really into 50s drama, um, sort of grandiose musical, that kind of thing. So, but he did a very good job in this, a very literary job, which is appropriate for um, the novel that it's based on. Burr Lives is goofy i mean i don't think you could do anything other i'm not saying it's bad but it does it does add a really interesting um 
interesting vibe to to see him in here as a sheriff. Uh, here's something that I, I've mentioned how sort of I feel like this movie is the very it resonates really well with uh, America right now uh, as as someone in my late 30s here. Uh, most of us are not making the money that we feel like we were promised uh, through college and other things. You know, we're, we're strapped with debt, um, student loans, uh, underpaying jobs, all sorts of things. I mean, the the wealthy, uh, and I don't just mean that, you know, even people who are a millionaire, the billionaires, especially, they're really trying to hold this level of power that is um, truly wild over over the country. And to assume that someone who could buy a country uh is such as studio heads who are uh letting waiting for actors and writers to lose their homes lose their apartments because of um their unwillingness to pay really what isn't even enough uh for for what the the creatives that make their content do uh with the, we're talking the writer strikes um the sag strike the um uh union crew strikes um, the the special effects artist strikes these things are all tied together with this sort of disenfranchisement with the america that we feel has not materialized for us and east of eden is all about that lack of what we need what we expect cal uh, and his brother they really cannot get from their father what they want and then Spoiler alert, there's a reveal that their mother uh, is is alive and uh, just estranged, just estranged is a pretty big deal. But um, then the entire fabric of their belief system with within their family just collapses, it's ripped apart. And it's sort of the, the violent outburst then that uh, Dean's character exhibits so well is this kind of pushback not even a pushback it's a a free fall in desperation because if you can't if everything you've been working for is shown to be uh unattainable uh and you have no you you have no alternative thought out you have no other path then there's just this hopelessness and depending on who you are and where you are in that in that journey to discovery that shatters your worldview you're going to either collapse or uh, lash out, right? So in that way, I feel like East of Eden is very much a good parallel to um, the what is often called the, not often, but sometimes called the the liberal viewpoint of life in America right now and, and being a working or trying to work individual uh, who's unable to even contemplate retirement. Uh, not even not even a, a fraction of, of mind can be given to that when you're so far in debt, as so many of us are. But East of Eden, in that way, it is just a radical departure from uh, the films of John Ford and Rio Grande uh, a mere five years earlier, right? So this movie, violent, intense, full of this uh, seething anger and also this this childlike desperate desire to be loved and appreciated uh, and and have someone be proud of you it is not it is sort of unrequited right any sort of resolution is still somehow unfulfilling uh, it is not fulfilling uh, in, in what you're looking for so this is really not just influent not just a parallel of our times now but it's very influential to films now because east of eden 
has, I mean, Stanley Kubrick, by the way, said that um, director uh, Liek Zahn is uh, the was the greatest American filmmaker, um, and this movie is stunning. As is, um, you know, Streetcar Named Desire, and I really think that I can see strong parallels between Kubrick and Kazan because the the shots are deliberate, and there's always a focus on some sort of delivering not just an emotion in the scene but delivering an emotional message to the viewer right we can there's a difference between watching someone be emotional and being uh your ourselves um becoming emotional because of what we're seeing that identification uh whether it's you know in a horror movie the terror or whether uh in you know uh uh, a romance that the desire these things really affect the viewer when we don't just understand what's happening on screen and see what the characters are going through but we're pulled into a place where we don't always even want to be um with that character right we're literally with them and their emotions uh our reactions and our our emotions that come from those reactions are the same as the character on screen it's not even that we're seeing their reactions and feeling what they're feeling. We're actually reacting to their situations as they are. And that's the success of being able to, to really make a viewer connect and lose themselves in uh, a scene. And when your scenes are focused on emotion, it's gonna be the characters that are, are causing that. Okay, so that's the highbrow, high level uh, idea of, of how this movie, East of Eden, uh, really informs contemporary cinema here in the US. And, I would argue beyond, but for sure we can say here in the U.S. As I noted, Stanley Kubrick was a great admirer of Kazan's films, but I th here's here's where cult films come in. Okay, um, there is a a level of sort of melodramatic randomness that occurs in East of Eden and many dramas like this, especially at the time. And we talked about Rebel Without a Cause, and that is one of the greatest examples of extreme melodrama. It is actually beyond reality, right? If you actually watch it now, um, you can certainly lose yourself in the film and it becomes very engaging, but also you can logically think about it and realize that it is, it is beyond Romeo and Juliet being young people in love and, and killing themselves over the loss of each other, right? It's actually this, you know, like kids flying off the handle because uh, X, Y, and Z is is stressful, right? Growing up is hard. And yes, they, they also have familiar, familial issues as the characters in East of Eden do, but so so do we all i'm not saying that one person's reaction is uh is right or wrong or one person should be able to handle something another uh can't but the melodrama comes from overacting over emoting uh making things more dramatic that's why it's melodrama it's more extreme more over the top than one might expect. And when you have that level, sort of you're running, you know, instead of instead of running at a five and then, you know, peaking at 10, you're running at an eight and your peaks of 10 um, may not be as far, but you just, you don't have anywhere else to go. You can think of another really great example of melodrama. I think my favorite example is Mommy Dearest, right? Uh, Faye Dunaway's portrayal uh, of, of Joan is so 
truly wildly insane on occasion um the hatchet hatcheting the tree um the you know um no wire hangers these things are famous because they are so over the top you know the scenery is chewed uh there's there you know there was not a, a a crown molding or a door frame that didn't have teeth marks all over it in mommy dearest and in some ways Robothetic causes is similar. East of Eden has that, I would say, to a smaller level, but it is a melodrama. So when you look at those things, I think of another really famous cult melodrama, and people will will sort of, I think, be stunned. The Room. Tommy Wiseau's The Room, which is one of the most famous cult films to have come out of, of uh, you know, this, the last decade uh, or, or two decades, really, of American cult cinema is insane because there's very little logic from scene to scene, plot point to plot point. The arc of the story is really unclear. Um, we know what happens, but we don't really know what the driving force was. But what we do see are characters having really random explosions of, uh, of emotion and energy. The acting may not always be on par with what's supposed to be taking place, but that randomness that high level of uh, discomfort that comes with not knowing what's coming next it comes out in sort of a fun joyful way in the room because it's so crazy to us like you know the the uh, tommy was characters do things without clear motive but it also is a little uncomfortable because you just don't know what's going to happen and that is as a as a mammal as an animal in general that has some sort of uh instinctual desire for uh, safety for um for calm dependability reliability uh routine those things are bucked when you have uh, these melodramatic films because you don't know how far it's going to escalate and you can't always judge when it when these explosions of emotion are going to occur and the room is a fantastic example of that so if you ever hear of a cult film that's a drama chances are it is an extreme melodrama and if you think that you haven't seen a cult melodrama uh, i'm sure you've seen the room but if you think you haven't guess what Every one of the cult films that you've watched, especially slasher films or detective, um, you know, uh, thrillers or erotic thrillers that you've seen, those play heavily off melodrama. Because think of, don't think of the slasher part, right? The murder scenes, etc. Think of what they end up building as the the character stories around those murders. That is melodrama. That is, um, you know, it's rare to see a cult film that has a deep soft quiet nuanced uh level i i had a writing instructor very well-known uh editor of literary magazines uh, in particular as well as a writer say to that the climax of your novel could be it, it could be as you know vast as an explosion or loud as an explosion or as soft as the exhale of a sleeping baby Right. And so what happens is, is what he means is, is this all about the meaning and the the uh, the meaning that the audience derives from that moment. OK, that they apply that moment to the rest of the, the film or story. And that's what they get. Um, that's a very nuanced, very difficult to attain uh, element of film uh, or novels, et cetera, but especially in a film to that's hard to get.
It takes uh, a lot of things lining up, a great script, you know, um, scenes, lighting, technology that doesn't deter, uh, that doesn't detract rather from the, the focal events of the scene and great acting, right? It's really hard to carry a seriousness um, and without, without stating what's happening openly and directly as these films prefer not to do, these nuanced um, films. It's very hard to do that without someone who can really act um, put the emotion into their role without having it bleed across the screen or explode across the screen. You know, it, it takes effort. It takes restraint, restraint that generally someone who isn't well practiced in acting isn't going to, they're not going to be able to attain it. Now, I'm sure there, there are geniuses that can do it from day one, but that's not most of us, right? So Cult films don't have all of those things often, especially low budget cult films. They do not have necessarily the strongest actors, right? Uh, oftentimes, especially in our, you know, some of our favorites, ultra low budget films, they're just friends. They're, they don't even consider themselves actors, right? So when you have a cult film and you don't have the technical excellence because you don't have the money, you don't have the, um, maybe you don't have the cinematography as, as crisp as, as these other, you know, more nuanced films, these films that can afford to strive for that quiet, uh, quiet climax, right? They, you don't have that because you can't rely on all the things around it that make that happen. You can't rely on those things to be effective enough. So what do you do? You turn to melodrama because melodrama has that crazy, elastic, wild energy that you can get away with even if you don't have the strongest acting cast, even if your camera angle is bonkers, um, even, you know, how many cult movies, low budget movies have we seen where it's clear the camera is just sitting on top of someone's car roof across the street, right? I mean, look for it. You'll see it everywhere now. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you do it as a filmmaker because it's quick and effective. Like it, it does the job, the dirty you know, quick job may not be perfect. It may not even be level, but it is, it's there, right? You're capturing the scene on film. And when your actors can't necessarily deliver a line in a very nuanced, I'm using that word a lot, but it's very important when they can't do it necessarily, or they can't regularly do it, they're not experienced enough, uh, then you have to have something there to engage viewers that you can attain. And that's that you know, that, that crazy melodrama. Um, it's why characters often shout out, uh, it's often a character will um, have a breakup with their partner uh, before a scene, or they will have um, a, 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 a violent screaming match, or they'll have, somebody else will have the violent screaming match. And then uh, our lead character will have like the cold shoulder reaction, which is a very powerful thing in melodrama as well, because you're paralleling this violent force with this, immovable calm force uh you see that most often when you know the tough guy leaves the the um the 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 prostitute with a heart of gold right uh she's like don't go i don't want you to and he's like bah, 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 you know uh <laughs> that's that's my impression of that character bah, 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 bah. Uh, so so we see these things and they're melodrama and they surround uh the cult films that we love right the the slasher flicks the um uh, we even see it a lot in, you know, like a dollar bin science fiction film, right? Because these things, they we don't have the money, we don't have the the available resources all the time to do 
a uh, Terminator Salvation McGee film, right? Where it's just nothing but wall-to-wall special effects. We don't have that as a cult low-budget filmmakers. So we have to find a way to make every scene engaging to uh, get our audience to the next scene where we do have the budget to do what we want. We can do the decapitation, right? We can do the vampire reveal. We can do um, the the super sexy uh, striptease scene. Like those are the things that we know the audiences are gonna like, and we have to keep them engaged through the stuff that we have to put around it, right? It doesn't mean that all cult movies have sort of cliched uh, framing stories or scenes that are meant to just basically manipulate the viewer to hang around but that's that's kind of the deal right and it's not just cult films big big budget movies especially poorly constructed action films have this too right i mean look at the fast and the furious movies and hey there's a lot of cast members in fast and furious that i love but they're not they're not high thinking films uh they don't really need to be but everything around the action scenes is completely unnecessary uh it's just filler until you get to the next big moment uh, and so we need those fillers when we're low budget working uh, on film or rather working on low budget films we need those to be engaging and melodrama is how we do it so that's how east of eden feeds into uh sort of our modern understanding of uh cult films or rather our modern version of cult films okay you will see this everywhere especially the shot on video films from the late 80s all the way through the 90s uh, even to you know the 2000s you get melodrama everywhere um Blair Witch you have melodrama um I would argue that there are pl- there's plenty of nuanced understated st- stress as well but melodrama is certainly there especially in the big the big fight moments okay so I'm gonna wrap it up do I recommend East of Eden well of course I do I recommend East of Eden and um Rio Grande. Uh, They're both very beautifully done films. Uh, For my preference, I guess it would depend on my mood, right? If I want an old classic Western pre-spaghetti Western, right? We talked about that last week. It doesn't have the grittiness really of a spaghetti Western. Um, If we want something like that, uh, then Rio Grande is an excellent example. It's sort of actually the epitome of that kind of safe black and white good bad movie and it is quite beautifully shot it certainly is beautifully shot uh and east of eden then is the real powerhouse for me it's a strong melodrama it speaks to our contemporary frustration with the society that we find ourselves in um the the failure of uh the infrastructure that we have around us purportedly to help us live and thrive the failure of that to do so and the realization that um those people managing an infrastructure like that whether it's uh our uh, elected officials or multi-billionaires or uh our, our our parents um when those things fail the world that we have have expected and become safe in falls apart for us we have to reevaluate and rebuild everything and that can be a very difficult very frustrating angering uh and depressing time and east of eden speaks to that it's basically the whole film (laughs) is it speaks to that so check it out uh, especially if you're feeling frustrated with the world and you need to to be cathartic about getting some of that out so you can uh you know hit the picket lines uh check out east of eden from 1955 if you don't like quote unquote i don't like old movies first off 
stop saying that go back watch the movies there are movies that literally could have been filmed today all the way back to the 40s probably even the 30s right so you can really see them if you think that classic cinema doesn't have anything to interest cult sensibilities uh hopefully these two episodes have changed your mind uh and if not make sure you've watched sunset boulevard i mean it it almost like right near the opening they're they're having a funeral for uh a pet monkey like it's wild banana stuff so you you may not think that you're interested in old films uh if you're really interested in cult movies especially horror movies but that's just not the case you just haven't looked uh closely enough so it's a whole you know thousands upon thousands of movies to dive into that you may not have experienced and as you watch them you're gonna find those kernels of the cult films and the low budget indie films that you love sprinkled throughout these so thank you so much if you're listening in uh in excuse me august of 2023 make sure you go to cultandclassicfilms.com and sign up for our newsletter because it puts you in um the running to win 4k digital copies of Rio Grande and East of Eden. Uh, so you can get both these films that I talked about on this pair of episodes uh, for absolutely free. All you got to do is sign up for the newsletter and we have a lot of copies to give away. So uh, there's a really good chance that you will get these and they are stunning. They have never looked better. Uh, the 4k is pretty wildly good uh, for these movies. So go ahead, sign up cultofclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and, uh, Thank you so much. As always, we'll play us out with the chud, but make sure you like and subscribe wherever you watch this. Uh, if you listen, go and write a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash cult and classic films because we have exclusive cult films, really awesome, insanely low budget, weird films that we send to you every month right to your door uh, in, in regular or super special collector's edition movie uh, versions with POG, signed posters, all sorts of stuff. Prices are great. Check it out. You won't want to miss this because these titles are really hard to find. Some of them are literally not, not available. So check it out and uh, enjoy. Thanks so much. We'll catch you next week with a brand new pairing of cult and classic films. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.